good. Mark chapter 3, verse 28 to 29. This is a series we've been uh, following through in the mornings uh, in our our summer, and it's called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Uh, I was talking to someone this week, and uh, they're saying, what do you mean by the hard sayings of Jesus? And I quoted a couple of them, and I went, oh yeah, those are hard, aren't they? Uh, So chapter 3, verses 28 and 29 of Mark's Gospel. Jesus' words. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Gosh, loving Father, you sent your Son to reveal who you are, that we see Jesus, we see who you are. Teaching for the ministry. We thank you that, uh, of Jesus, we thank you that even at the start of those, uh, those verses, truly, I tell you, that you, Jesus, hold the words of eternal life. That though they may cause us to pause and stop and think uh, and may be challenged, we thank you that your words are true and trustworthy. That they are good words. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask this morning as I reflect on these, teach them, uh, seek to apply them. You'd help us see our existence in the context of these truths. And may they feed us and nourish us and continue to shape us into the likeness of Jesus. Amen. Unforgivable. I remember reading these words as a new Christian in uh, November 1991, and I'd been given a Bible. I I was kind of thinking, I want to know about this Jesus that I've just discovered, and thought the best place for that is the Scriptures, still true. And uh, I read through uh, Matthew, and I got to Mark, and I got to chapter 3, and this passage I remember kind of reading it and kind of stopping gulping and thinking, oh my goodness, and being really, really worried. Because I'd spent over 19 years being really hostile to the gospel, to Jesus, of denying belief in the reality of Jesus and thinking, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And I was really worried. I couldn't kind of resolve it. And so uh, thankfully I was uh, become friends with and uh, was uh, kind of part of the Christian union there. And there were some other believers who had walked with Jesus a little bit longer than, uh, much longer than I had. And so I was able to say to them, what does this mean? Am I discounted because I committed this unforgivable sin? I, I thought Jesus forgives sins, all sins. And here he seems to be saying... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Is Jesus having a bad day? What is going on here? These, these are hard words, strong words. 
And indeed, uh, no wonder, form part of our, of our series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Uh, and maybe if we were to sort of characterize them in a different way, we could maybe put them under the, the tag, things I wish Jesus never had said. <laughs> the context matters. Comes in this little uh, passage in chapter 3, uh, where Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. The, the, the crowds in, in, in the Gospels were confronted by, uh, by Jesus, as, as Mark has it, that, that we, Jesus launches into ministry, said, repent and believe the good news is at hand. And then began to prove it and demonstrate it in what he said and what he did. In healing the paralyzed man, in setting the demonized free, in calling sinners to follow him. And in starting to rock the boat of the culture of that time. That had established rules and regulations, the way things were done. And Jesus said, not so. That he began to heal on the Sabbath. That Jesus declared himself the Lord of the Sabbath, and there was a little bit of a kickback starting to happen. Those who knew the scriptures, those who thought they were the key people of God, started to criticize. So, verse 20, I'll read it through. Perhaps you could listen to it and you'll hear these words we've read in the context of the wider passage. Context matters. Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed with Beelzebul, the name of Satan. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes him uh, himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. So I want to kind of ask two questions and try and answer them for us. I guess the first one is what is sinning against the Holy Spirit? Jesus says it's unforgivable. What is it? What does that mean? And I guess where the rubber hits the road, have I, have you, are we guilty of that? Of being unforgivable. So the context, those watching Jesus begin to accuse him of being evil. They say that what he is doing is not what they think should happen, and therefore how he is able to be doing it to deliver people from evil spirits is because he is on the same side and that Jesus himself is using evil to deceive and confuse the people, verse 22 would say. They're saying that that Jesus' power and miracles and his motive for acting, rather than being good are evil and demonic and not from God. 
In other words, that they are denying the presence of power and power of God in the word and work of Jesus. They're saying, this man that stands before us is a charlatan, a confuser, a deceiver. Worse than that, he is doing the work of the devil. It's a big thing to say. And Jesus said, because they do that, they are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, in effect, that this is stupid and absurd. Why would evil adopt such a self-defeating plan? Evil pitted against evil will fall. What they are not seeing is the greatness of God in their midst. One of Mark's primary questions that goes through is, is who is this Jesus? Who do you say that he is? That the evidences, the miracles, the teaching, the astonishment, the breakthroughs, the kingdom of God at hand are clear signs that this is the Savior, the Messiah, the promised one. Evil cannot do good. Evil cannot forgive sins and heal, as the illustration of the man let down through the roof just earlier in the gospel. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Evil cannot do that. Evil cannot bring hope and life and fulfillment and peace. And to accuse Jesus of such is utterly wrong. A house divided against itself will fall. Uh, I, I, probably the, I'm underlining something you will recognize. Uh, I, I, don't mishear this illustration because I'll get myself into hot water if you mishear this, but we are living in an age of uh, political turmoil. You know that. We've got big things coming up. I'm not accusing any political party of being of evil now. Clear that up. But we are really observing the house of the conservatives, the house of labor, divided against themselves. And this stalemate, this stuck thing that that when a a group turn in on themselves and are divided to the core, fracture lines really deep, it doesn't lead to strength. It leads to powerlessness and infighting, turning in on itself and of unable to accomplish something. I just want to to hold that up as as a glimmer or a little insight about what Jesus is saying. That if he was doing the work of Satan, it would just bring the whole thing crashing down. Jesus, in this hard saying, is saying this willful resistance to the work of God is inexcusable by the religious leaders and that this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and it's unforgivable. So what is sinning against the Holy Spirit? Um, I hope no one's kind of like deeply anxious at this point. I want to reassure you that this sinning against the Holy Spirit is not a single act or a single word or a single choice. But here is the good news. That Jesus underlines and reiterates in all of the Gospels and is underlined and expanded through all of the rest of the teachings of the New Testament. In fact, the whole thrust of Scripture itself. All sins will be forgiven and are forgiven through the cross. You're probably thinking, well, isn't that now in contradiction? Let me develop that. 
even blaspheming against Jesus himself is forgivable. But Jesus here says that, uh, that to be guilty to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit isn't forgivable. Let me clarify. Do you remember when Jesus, if you don't remember it, you can read it in the Gospels, but particularly in Luke chapter 23, that on the cross that Jesus is crucified, he's, he's naked and bare and nailed to the cross and bleeding in agony as he dies as the innocent victim, but as our substitute. As he is on the cross, the crowds around him, Roman centurions, Roman citizens, and the Jews, representative of the whole of humanity, are shouting blasphemy at Jesus. And Jesus, in one of his final words from the cross, says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In other words, you can blaspheme and crucify and torture and kill Jesus and stand directly opposed to him in his most wonderful, most uh, revealing moments as he dies suffering for the entire world and to put right everything that is wrong, every rebellion and rejection against God. Even in that moment, as people harassed him and said, you are not of God, save yourselves. Who do you think you are, you deceiver? They could still receive mercy. Forgiveness. But the challenge of this hard saying is, is don't dare to ultimately reject God. What I think Jesus is driving at here when he talks about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an unrelenting refusal to have anything to do with God. A consistent perpetual, ongoing hostility, disregard, rejection, blankness to God. Let me just reinforce what I'm saying about the scope and the breadth of God's forgiveness first. You may say, well, those that are at the foot of the cross, those Romans, those soldiers, those religious leaders, the the authorities... They, yeah, well, they were blaspheming God, yet the, the, we've indicated that Jesus says, forgive them, they don't know what they do. But the scope of God's mercy and grace is even broader. Think of Peter, just that very morning, when challenged, aren't you one of them? Aren't you with them? Three times, get away from me. No, I don't know him. And even cursed Jesus. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, cursed Jesus. And three times when Jesus encountered him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, forgiven, having cursed his friend and savior Jesus. Mercy and grace and forgiveness from Jesus flowed abundantly for Peter and for us in our sin. 1 John 1 7, John who didn't flee from the cross, who witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, says in, in one of his letters, but if we walk in the light and he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And this is the key bit I want to highlight. Then the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin.
I think what Jesus is driving at to those who are religious, and indeed in our day and age, is don't close one's life forever against God. That God is at work explicitly and implicitly by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in a myriad of ways. The Holy Spirit is the good spirit because he does the good work of Jesus and the exceptionally good work. They are all good of the Father. And to declare that the good work of God is evil, is corrupt, of the Holy Spirit at work is to deny God's presence, God's love, God's nature and character. That the Holy Spirit is at work. But if we refuse to discern his divine presence, what happens? If we remain resolutely closed to God's gracious mercy, what happens? What happens if we are so adamant in our resistance to what is holy that we celebrate moral evil and condemn good? What happens? It's a challenge in this day of age, an age of relativism, of saying, it doesn't really matter. It does. God is good. And his word declares it. We, the opposite of relative is absolute. One of the things that is really important in faith is that we're not just all pursuing something. We're following Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, who has showed us the way, and we're to follow it, describes it as the narrow way, not the broad way, but the way nonetheless, and that his word is true, and it's our authority to trust it. Whereas so many around us are denying it and saying it's outdated, irrelevant, bigoted, cruel. To run the risk of calling what is good evil. And in so doing we become heirs and inheritors of the attitude of Jesus' critics. So what is sinning against the Holy Spirit? It's willfully denying, closing our mind, hardening our heart, turning away from again and again, perpetually saying this is evil not good, of saying, I know better. I think that what is good is turned up on its head and is bad. I steadfastly set my attitude, the course of my life, against the things of God. And the hard saying and the warning of Jesus says, that's a really foolish, dangerous place to be. There's a glimpse of it in the Old Testament. In the great saving work of the Old Testament in the Exodus, second book of the Bible, when Moses is sent to the Pharaoh, let my people go, let them live, let them come out of slavery and live in freedom from being oppressed and, and locked into a destructive life where there is no hope and no freedom and no future. Let my people go and goes and confronts Pharaoh and Pharaoh again and again says, no, I will not. And there comes these little repeated refrains in the cycle of judgments that, or plagues that happen where it starts saying, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. And then even more strikingly, as, uh, as that hardness continues, of that choice again and again of Pharaoh, I will not countenance what this prophet of the Lord is saying. 
the addition, not only the Pharaoh hardening his heart, but the Lord hardened his heart too. It didn't end well for Pharaoh. So I guess the, the nub of the issue is, have I, have you sinned against the Holy Spirit? Like me, as a new Christian, countless people, maybe even you this morning, because I've read the scripture and opened it up, are beginning to wonder if you've committed the unforgivable sin. Let me make this clear. If you are concerned or even troubled, that means you have not committed it. Let me reiterate that. The very fact that you're alive to the question and thinking, have I overstepped a line, means that your spirit is alive and open to the prompting of the spirit to consider the fact that have you, in order that you are given the gift to turn and repent and choose again, God means that you haven't been unforgiven, you haven't been crossed the line, that you haven't moved into total hardness and kind of being lost, as Jesus would say. Someone who has allowed their heart to harden like concrete will be entirely unconcerned and not worried about it. The very fact that you're questioning it indicates the grace of God is at work in your life. Let me try to illustrate. A young boy was really very, very, very excited when he heard a circus was coming to town. And the town was getting ready for this great event. It was a bit of a boring town. Uh, and so they, in order to kind of get ready for the procession of all the performers and the animals and, and everything that would come with the circus, they, they wanted to make sure that the street, the, the main street, was just kind of uh, ready. So they paved it with concrete so that there wouldn't be any uh, potholes or anything like that. And uh, like many children, probably you included, uh, if there's wet concrete, it's a license to a little bit of artistic flourishing, isn't it? Of a handprint or a footprint or, or even your initials marked for perpetuity in the wet cement. And as such, this little boy put his foot firmly and squarely in the freshly laid cement marking his mark. Anyway, the next day the circus came into town and they went down the main street and came this big parade of wagons and performers and clowns and jugglers and and caged lions and tigers and other exotic animals. And right at the end, the highlight of the procession, came the huge elephants lumbering down the road. And the boy remembered that he had put his foot into the concrete and rushed to where the elephants had uh, come down and, and walked and was eager to see what sort of footprint these great beasts would make. But there were no marks. The concrete was now so hard and impervious that even the great weight of these mighty elephants left no mark. It's kind of a small parable about the hardened heart. It becomes impervious. To every approach, to every move of the Spirit, to every time the voice of the Lord calls out, turn to me, turn to me. The impervious Cold, hardened heart has no mark left on it. You see, the wonder and the truth of Scripture is that God is continually seeking us, pursuing us, calling out to us, beckoning us, uh, giving us opportunity upon opportunity to turn to him, to turn back to him, to renew our faith in him. But he never forces that upon us. Phil regularly uses the, the picture of Holman Hunt's Light of the World. 
probably seen it. You can Google the picture. In it, Jesus is depicted as standing outside the door on a cottage that is overgrown. He has a lantern in his hand, knocking, waiting. Someone pointed out there's no handle on the outside the door. Indicating the only way the door can be opened is from within. By that freely choosing, as God waits, as God knocks, as God repeatedly through his spirit seeks to turn. Still the choice is ours. In countless ways, God's spirit is calling us to himself, offering again and again the gift of eternal life, of healing our brokenness, of of seeking to bring fullness of life to everyone. But ultimately, the choice to respond is ours. Holman Hunt's painting illustrates the graciousness of God. He takes the initiative, but we are free to reject or open the door. And that's an astonishing reality, that we are given liberty to choose freely, yes or no. Yes, we want to become part of your eternal plans and purpose that you've loved us since the creation of the world. Or no, I will have nothing to do with you. I don't want to live in goodness. I will choose evil. Eternal separation. Hell. God calls to each one of us. I would like you to come and walk with me. But I will not make you. If you choose to go the other way, it grieves me deeply, but you're free to go, free to separate yourself from me. I think the unforgivable sin is therefore to refuse even to our dying breath to have anything to do with God. To reject again and again his gracious loving call, wooing us, pursuing us, seeking out the lost, saying I'll have nothing of that. I want to reiterate, our Father will receive us whenever we turn back. Even if we change our mind at the very last moment. Remember again, as Jesus was on the cross, Luke again records it. In their final moments, the thief, one of the thieves, Jesus, remember me. Right in the final moments of earthly life, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus replies, I will. You today, you will be with me in paradise. But only one of the thieves said yes. Urge and and exhort and implore. Don't presume too much or wait too long. To blaspheme or slander the Holy Spirit, as I've been saying, is to refuse to have anything to do with God. And is the ultimate, the final, no. What is it about? It's the, it's the spiteful denial of every activity of God's spirit in the ministry of Jesus. It's to label the Holy Spirit an unclean spirit. And to deny the Holy Spirit works directly in our fallen world through human beings. To subdue the evil powers and to free people and institutions from Satan's grip. To say that is bad, when again and again and again, the work of Jesus is good. 
as a 19-year-old, having opposed so much of God, I was quite troubled. Maybe if there's been such a moment in your life, you, you may feel deep regret and, and I don't really... But even as I've said, that that moment indicates that the, the opportunity of repentance, which is a God-given moment, means that the Holy Spirit is at work close by you, bringing and seeking to bring mercy and forgiveness and, and that calling to repent. Jesus himself in John's Gospel said this, but very, very truly I tell you, it's good for you that I'm going away, John 16, 7 to 11. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, that's the Holy Spirit, I will send him to you, verse 8. When he comes, he will prove to the world, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where, we can, uh, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment. Because the prince of this world now stands condemned. In other words, Jesus is saying one of the functions, the purposes of the Holy Spirit in coming, of which there are many, is that he should bring that conviction of spirit to say that without him in the life that I'm leading, uh, with forgetfulness about God or even hostility about God, actually the Holy Spirit says you are walking the wrong path. Come and turn to the right one. And as the Holy Spirit does that, it means that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life still. Hallelujah. It's when we are deaf to him, perpetually deaf to him, we become in that place of fearfulness. Have you noticed how we will often focus on the one thing rather than on the many. If I, if I preach a sermon and uh, 20 of you, I mean, that would be generous on a usual morning, but 20 of you said, that was a great sermon. That was a really great sermon. Thank you so much. But one person said, I hated that. What do you think I'd remember and dwell on? If someone criticizes you, you remember the criticism, not all the encouragements. It's, we're, we're wired to be a bit weird like that. It's kind of the ongoing battle to to trust in, in the good of God's word and not the accusation of this, the evil one. The nature of, of focusing on this hard saying, and it is a hard saying, as I, I close, I want to put it in this context, is we're a bit like this. We kind of focus on this, <gasps> what is the one sin that isn't forgiven, and forget the bigger, broader, most wonderful scope. The other side of this hard saying is the truth of the expansive mercy and graciousness of God. God's forgiveness can truly reach to touch and forgive every sin, bar none. God's forgiveness is far beyond our imagining. When we're confronted with this hard saying and, and the focus of it, thinking, is it me? Have I done it? Let's look and step back and recognize the magnitude. As I read from Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west. It's easy to lose sight of this astonishing truth that every, all uh, other sins are forgiven and forgivable by the extravagant mercy of God as his son, Jesus, bears all sin upon the cross. Hallelujah. 
The tendency is, is for us as believers to so uh, frequently seize on the negative act aspect of this saying, oh, what's the one? And neglect the positive statement that all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. Very often I come across people who say, God can't forgive me. You don't know what I've done. If I, if I, you know, and most people can't even voice what shame or what brokenness they're carrying. And I have to say again and again, look to the cross. He purifies us from all sins. That in the context of this one hard saying, we must not draw down or narrow down the enormity of what Jesus has done in bearing the sins of the world as he died. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness. Are you carrying that kind of limp of, I'm not sure if God has forgiven me. That shame, that repeated accusation. I spoke with one of our young people this week and over the course of, of a number of years at Soul Survivor, he didn't get up to respond to a particular message and I just sat with him and I said, what's up? And he said, I've got stuck. I got up last year because I've become addicted to pornography. And I thought it was beyond me to get up again to say, help, Lord. And he was carrying as a, as a follower of Jesus, just this, God, God, God will be cross with him if I come back to him, won't he? And I sat and I prayed and as the tears fell down his face, the love of God and the forgiveness of God met him afresh. We come to church and we kind of give the thing of worshiping the songs, but sometimes our heart carries a deep unease. Am I forgiven? The cross says yes. Am I forgiven? The cross says yes. And here that even if you're thinking... Have I blasphemed the Spirit that you have the opportunity still because you're asking that question to say, forgive me, Lord. I turn to you. I repent. Let me walk in your ways now. Do you remember that there was a man called Saul? He was the arch enemy of Jesus in the early days of the church and he slandered Jesus. He blasphemed the name of Jesus and said, this is not of God. And he stood opposed to all that God was doing. He stood celebrating and nodding as Stephen was martyred, as the rocks hit him and his blood flowed. He was nodding, saying, good. And he went on and he persecuted other believers with passion and conviction and great vigor. But on one of his journeys, before it was too late, he literally saw the light and received everlasting mercy. He was welcomed by Jesus. Saul became Paul. Is it possible for anyone to change and be changed? Yes. I pray that we welcome that hope today and embrace again that deep reassurance. Amazing, amazing grace.
Let's pray together.